0: Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church, located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make him known.
1: The gospel lesson for today is from Luke chapter 23, verses 18 through 25. This can be found on page 1050 of your Pew Bible. During the Passover, Jesus is brought before the Roman governor Pilate for sentencing. Although Pilate declares Jesus's innocence three times, he is compelled by the angry crowd to condemn Jesus to crucifixion. A reading from Luke chapter 23, beginning with the 18th verse. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and released to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word.
0: This fall, I've been enjoying going to my eighth grade daughter's volleyball games. She's on the team for her school, and I try to get to as many games as I can. I secretly love the game of volleyball. It's one of my favorite sports to watch. When I was little, my two older sisters both played, and so I've been to like a million games. And they changed the scoring rules some years ago, so you score, every time the ball's moving, there's going to be a point. And it's really exciting. It's really fast-moving. I think that's what I like about the sport. But I've noticed something this year as I've been watching— As fast-moving as the sport is, it slows way down all of a sudden when one thing happens. And that is the substitution of the athletes. A girl comes off the bench, and another girl is going to the bench. The whole thing slows way down. And the one girl going onto the bench, she goes up to the sideline of the court, and she puts her hand up like this, okay? And the girl coming off the bench comes up, and they, they put their hands together like this, okay? Everything slows down. The coach calls for the substitution, and the scorekeeper sits there with a pen or pencil, writing down very deliberately number four for number 11. Okay. Then they can go, and then the game goes back to its fast pace. You're probably wondering why in the world I'm telling you about this. Well, today we're also going to see, we're going to witness in the biblical story a substitution. And we're all living these fast-paced lives, but I want us to slow down like they do in my eighth grade daughter's volleyball games and pay attention to the substitution that takes place. The gospel story seems to want us to do that. All four gospels include this story of Barabbas and Jesus and Pontius Pilate, and they tell us deliberately the details that took place. And as I've been preparing for this sermon this week, reflecting on this story, I've realized this is the most important substitution that ever took place in human history. And the implications for all of us could not be higher. So let's slow down our busy lives for a moment and pay close attention to this all-important substitution. Where are we in the story? Well, it's Holy Week. It's the festival of Passover. Normally, we look at the story during the church calendar, Holy Week. But here we are in early November. I kind of like being off schedule as we go through our three-year chronological study of the Bible because we get to look at these stories in a different light. Remember when you were young and you saw your teacher or your coach in the grocery store? Like, oh, have this whole different side to them. I didn't realize I've been having that experience as I look at these stories, not during Holy Week, but in November, and I'm noticing this substitution aspect of the Barabbas story and this Holy Week story. So Jesus has already been arrested. He's already held captive by the religious leaders who are trying to turn him over to the Roman authorities because they knew they couldn't kill him by their laws. But they knew the Roman authorities could, so they've handed him into the hands of Pontius Pilate. So here we are in the story. Pontius Pilate, you can almost picture like a stage. Pontius Pilate is standing there, and he's got two men on either side of him. Barabbas and Jesus. Unrighteous and righteous. Guilty and innocent. But the crowd, watching everything taking place on the stage, is pleading with Pilate. In this way, verse 18 is where we begin. But they cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. There was a custom apparently during the festival of Passover that the Romans would release somebody from prison as part of the festivities. Verse 19, who was Barabbas? A man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Now, the brief story here in Luke 23 tells us this detail twice. Usually in the biblical story, that's a way of drawing our attention to it. What detail does it tell us twice about? What Barabbas had been thrown into prison for? Insurrection and murder. What is insurrection, really? I know it's been on our minds a little bit over the last couple of years. It's been topical. But insurrection at its, at its core, the basic reality of insurrection is when a group of people collectively decide that whoever's in charge shouldn't be in charge anymore. They collectively decide that they would probably do a better job if they were in charge. It's a little bit like a coup d'etat, but with no plan on how to run the place afterwards. An insurrection says, you know, there's somebody in charge, but we'd rather be in charge. Usually it's accompanied by a violent mob, but at its core, it's basically an agreement of people saying, we can decide for ourselves rather than whoever the authority over us is. And when you think about insurrection in that way, in its basic form, you realize that insurrection is really at the heart of original sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, they had an authority. God, their creator. God gave them one rule. You can eat of any tree you want except for this one. And Adam and Eve collectively decided together, you know what? We'd rather be in charge. One of the temptations from the serpent was, if you taste this fruit, you will be like God. So Adam and Eve mounted what could be called a spiritual insurrection against God, their creator. We didn't like the one rule you gave us, so we decided we're going to rule ourselves like children rebelling against a parent. In fact, that's how God describes all of us because of sin. Not my words. Isaiah 1 verse 2, this is how God looks around at the whole world, all of his children, everybody with original sin. And he says this, Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against. <laughs> Insurrection, at its core level, is something that infects everybody who has original sin. So here's Barabbas, an insurrectionist. And what was his other sin? Murder. Well, what is murder at its core? Murder at its core is basically taking life selfishly. It's the most selfish thing you can imagine doing. We were created by God to love him Purely to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To submit and surrender to his will. To love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To love generously and to love sacrificially. Uh, With our insurrectionist hearts, we don't love God in a humble and submissive way. We decide we'd rather be in charge. And in the same way we don't love others sacrificially and generously, we turn inward. We turn from life givers to life takers. At the very core of who we are, because of sin, we want other people to serve us and not them. And so we take resources and we take life from others. Does that make us murderers? No, no. But it does mean that we have the same common ingredient in our souls that leads to murder. And we'll be liable to the same judgment. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, really? Are you saying that I have the same ingredient in me that led Barabbas and others to murder and I'm liable to the same judgment? Well, no, I'm not saying that. But Jesus did. That's right. Matthew 5, verse 21, Jesus said this, You've heard... That it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who's angry, everyone who has hatred in their hearts towards a brother or sister. What Jesus is saying here is that what sin does to us is it turns us inward. We're designed to love God with our whole hearts. We're designed to love others as ourselves. But what sin does is it turns us in a much milder way, of course. Insurrection and murder are just the most extreme expressions of the same ingredient that sin puts in all of our hearts. It makes us want to be in charge. And instead of being life givers, it makes us life takers. So if you can make any kind of agreement with that, that that's what sin has done to you, that that's what sin has done to us, then if we look at Barabbas on that stage with Pilate, we realize that Barabbas is us. We are Barabbas, and Barabbas is us. I know this is hard to take in. We like to think of ourselves more, no, 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 no. There's insurrectionists and there's murders. There's bad guys and there's good guys. I mean, I'm sitting here in front of police officers, right? We're all on the right side of the law, I hope. Not according to the Bible, The Bible says that if we have sin, if we've inherited original sin from our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, then we have in our core, at our basis, an ingredient that leads, yes, to some extreme cases, insurrection and murder. But in a general sense, we all have something in us that makes us want to be in charge, even though we have a perfect authority in God. And it makes us want to take life instead of give life. Barabbas is a proxy standing on that stage for all of humanity. If you can make any kind of agreement with association with Barabbas now, then the story's about to get better because things get better for Barabbas. You'll like being associated with him in a moment. So let's find out what happens to Barabbas as we continue the story. Verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify! Crucify Jesus, the innocent man at Pilate's side. The crowd is demanding that he would be crucified. Crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be more even than what we think of as capital punishment. When the state ends someone's life as a potential deterrent to other criminals, it was that. But crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be even more than that. It was designed actually to, to erase somebody from the human record, as if they had never existed. You can learn a lot about crucifixion in this book that I highly recommend by Fleming Rutledge. Uh, it's called The Crucifixion. Fleming Rutledge is a living legend. She lives actually in the next town from here, and she wrote this masterpiece of a book called *The Crucifixion*. It describes what I just said—what the Romans designed crucifixion to do and to be—and much, much more. It's like 700 pages long. I really do recommend it. It's not exactly light reading. Uh, there's probably other Christian self-help books that would be, you know, a little bit more um, positive. But I'm telling you, Bebby, <laughs> you've read this. You know how powerful this is. The, I don't want to be so bold as to say it's better than any Christian help, self-help book out there, but it'll probably be more meaningful, really. It's, it actually changed my whole thinking, and it really deepened my faith. There's another book I would recommend, too. It's called Pierced for Our Transgressions. Before Fleming published this book, I recommended this one everywhere. When people wanted to learn about the cross, people wanted to learn about the crucifixion of Jesus, Pierced for Our Transgressions, this one's really good, too. They both go into the, just the depth and the meaning of this historical event of what happened on the cross. Crucifixion. This is what the people are crying out. And I'm wondering as Pilate is observing this, he knows what crucifixion is, what it's designed to do. I'm wondering what he's thinking. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has Jesus done? I found no guilt in him deserving death. I'll therefore punish and release him. What is Pilate thinking as he's standing here? He knows one man is innocent, one man is guilty, yet the crowd is crying out, crucify the innocent one. I wonder if Pilate is a little bit bewildered and wondering what is happening. Maybe that's why when Pilate actually got to talk with Jesus, you know his one question for Jesus, right? What is truth? Maybe Pilate was saying, what's going on here? What's true? Up is down, down is up. Why are these people calling out for you to be crucified? Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. It's one thing to imagine what Pilate was thinking as he heard this crowd calling for the crucifixion of the innocent one beside him and not the guilty one. But I wonder in this moment what Jesus was thinking. as he observed the people that he had come to teach and to heal and to feed and to redeem, crying out for his crucifixion. Jesus knew there was a much larger story taking place. There was a much larger narrative. There was a drama that Pilate probably had no idea that he had fallen into. Pilate was like a happenstance player in this larger drama. What was the larger story taking place? What was happening here in this exchange, this substitution of justice? Well, the New Testament would basically grapple with that question. What happened on the cross? Why did this substitution take place? And in 1 Peter 3, verse 18, we have this very succinct, this very clear, simple sentence of the larger drama that was taking place on that stage. 1 Peter 3, 18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It was our sin that held him there. Though we are guilty and he was innocent, this substitution took place so that he could receive the punishment we deserve. We're going to sing a song while we take communion in a few minutes. How deep the Father's love for us. Verse 2 of that song says this, Behold the man upon a cross. My sin... Upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That substitution that took place between Barabbas and Jesus took place on the cross. That's a substitution that's good news for us. What could possibly be our response, our takeaway? In our life group, sometimes we ask the question, what's the the walk-out-the-door idea from this Bible story? What's the the walk-out-the-door principle for us? If you've been around my preaching at all, if you've been around this church at all, you've heard this part so far, the exchange that happened on the cross. He died in our place. We celebrated at communion every Sunday. That's what we basically call the gospel. But the big question I want us to consider this morning is, okay, if the gospel took place, if the substitution took place, if he paid the price for my sins, what's my takeaway? How do I live the rest of my life? And I want us to try to answer that question by looking at the way these two men, Jesus and Barabbas, how their rest of their day went for them this day. Verse 25. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. For whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. We know how the rest of the day went for Jesus an innocent man, bound, led away, mocked, spit upon, beaten, lashed, and crucified. But how did the rest of the day go for Barabbas, I wonder? Barabbas, who had woken up that morning in prison with his hands and feet probably bound in chains. And at a certain point on this fateful day, Barabbas was released. He was released. He was set free. Do you remember a few minutes ago when I said, try to get yourself to make agreement in your mind that you are Barabbas, that Barabbas is you? We love this part of Barabbas' story. I've been set free. I've been released. We love associating with the freedom that we have in Christ, but it's hard for us to admit that at our core, because of sin, we are insurrectionists and life takers. But in order to realize how free, the free gift has been given to us by the cross, we have to confess our need for that freedom. We are Barabbas. How did Barabbas live the rest of his life? You know, the name Barabbas is a bit instructive for me. If you know Hebrew at all, you know that Bar- Barabbas is just two words, Bar and Abba, Abbas. Bar just means son of. So I would be Nathan Bar James, Nathan son of James. Bar just means son of. What does Abba mean in Hebrew? Father. Barabbas, son of the father. How deep the father's love for us, indeed, sons and daughters of the Father, we have a good, good Father. Verse one of that song, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons and daughters glory. Barabbas walked away free. We walk away free. Free from what? From the punishment we deserve. I wonder if the rest of Barabbas' life was defined by this moment. I'll bet it was. And think about this with me. What a shame it would be if Barabbas returned again to a life of criminality. I hope he didn't. I hope he was so grateful for the freedom that was afforded to him. As he, Maybe he looked over his shoulder as he was walking away in freedom, and maybe he saw Jesus walking off to the death he deserved. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Father, we've been set free. I love what it says in Galatians. It's for freedom you've been set free. Don't return again to a yoke of slavery, a yoke of sin. We are Barabbas and we've been set free. Let's live accordingly. Amen. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church
1: and how you can get involved, please visit stanwichchurch.org.